Chapter 25 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector Macpherson Chapter 25 The Romance of the Tides The ceaseless ebb and flow of the ocean has from the earliest ages attracted the attention of all thoughtful observers of nature. The waters of the sea are never at rest. No sooner is the ebb reached than the flood begins. No sooner is the flood reached than slowly but surely the waters begin to ebb. Thus for ages, ever since the world was first formed, the waves of the ocean have beaten on the shore, and since scientific speculation and research began, the cause of the tides has attracted the attention of men of science. The study of the tides belongs to the realm of astronomy. To many this statement doubtless comes as a surprise, yet it is strictly true. The tides are due to the gravitational pull on the earth of two celestial bodies, the sun and the moon, and the waters as the most easily pulled portion of the earth are consequently the parts which are most displaced in position. The moon is chiefly responsible for the tides, although the sun plays a smaller part in the phenomenon. Notwithstanding its vast superiority in size, the sun is so far away that its pull on the waters is much less than that of the insignificant moon. Our satellite plays the chief part in raising the tides. But the sun certainly makes its influence felt. Every month there are two spring tides, and two neap tides as they are called. The word, spring tide, is somewhat misleading, for a spring tide has nothing whatever to do with the season of spring. Spring tides, the highest tides of all, are due to the fact that at that time the moon is either new or full. The sun and moon are both exerting a pull in the same straight line, and their combined force raises a higher tide than usual. The lowest tides, or neap tides, take place when the moon is at first quarter or last quarter, at these periods, the sun and moon are tending to pull the waters in different directions, and the resulting tide is lower than the average. The tide which is raised on the earth is made up of two parts. The direct tide, the tidal wave on the portion of the earth towards the body which raises it, and the opposite tide on the other side of our planet. As the earth rotates on its axis from west to east, the watery bulge, as one astronomer calls the heaping up of the tides, appears to travel from east to west as a tidal wave twice in 25 hours, or to be more correct, 24 hours 48 minutes, the time required by the earth to make a complete rotation relative to the moon. Of course the waters of the ocean do not travel around the earth, only the form of the wave travels from east to west. This wave originates in the deep waters of the Pacific Ocean and travels westward, its speed varying with the depth of the ocean. The deeper the waters, the faster the velocity of the wave. As the wave is in motion, it meets other waves, so the resultant wave is not so simple as might be supposed. In about twelve hours, however, the main wave reaches New Zealand, and in about thirty hours it arrives at the Cape of Good Hope. Here it joins two other waves, the tide in the Atlantic off the African coast, and a reversed wave from the other side of Cape Horn. The resultant wave travels through the Atlantic with a velocity of about 700 miles an hour. 
In the deep oceans there is little bodily motion of the waters. The waters merely rise and fall with the velocity varying as their depth. It is otherwise, however, near the coasts. At the mouths of great rivers the waters move bodily up the river beds. Similarly on the seashore, as indeed we know well from experience, in the mouths of some rivers the result of the rising tide is very picturesque. In the case of the Seine, the tide surmounts the current of the river and rolls with increasing velocity up the river bed. This phenomenon is known as the bore. At Côte de Bec, on the Seine, this phenomenon is especially noticeable. The following lengthy notice by the master hand of Flammarion is worthy of quotation. So well does it explain this remarkable spectacle. Quote, on the day and the hour indicated, the wharf, shaded with perennial trees and splendid walks, is crowded with spectators. These are the inhabitants who are never tired of the grand spectacle of the river transformed, and strangers who come from far to enjoy and to study it. For a long time before the arrival of the flood, impatient eyes search the horizon, and the less experienced think every moment that they see it beginning at the extremity of the bay which forms this bend of the Seine. A low murmur announces its approach when it is still at a distance of several miles. The vast sheet of water advances rapidly under a radiant sun, in the midst of a verdure which a zephyr scarcely stirs. There are all the motions, all the agitations, all the fury of a tempest-tossed sea. Very soon the spectacle changes to become grander and more singular still. The enormous wave, which marches at the head of the tide, swells, rises, stands up. It bursts of a sudden, and its summit falls with a crash. An immense roll is formed and unfolds itself, sometimes from one end to the other. It is a cascade which moves, which runs and remounts the river with the speed of a galloping horse. The flood runs along like a wall of foam, overthrowing all obstacles and rearing itself up each instant like a gigantic plume to fall again quivering on the bank, which it deluges. The ground sometimes trembles under the feet of the spectators, who see in less time than it takes to describe it, the boiling mass passing on and pursuing its ungovernable course. End quote. In England there is another famous tide which rushes up the Bristol Channel with a tremendous force. The greatest tide in the world, however, is to be seen at the Bay of Fundy. Here the Atlantic passes into a lengthy channel, with sides which gradually converge. As the water rushes up this channel, it becomes heaped into a great volume, of which the height at the spring tides is over fifty feet. In mid-ocean, the rise and fall of the waters is much less than round the coasts. The island of St. Helena, for instance, is washed by a tide of which the height is only about three feet. Wonderful are the phenomena of the tides at the present time. Mighty are the forces possessed by the rolling waters, but a scientific study of the tides reveals facts more remarkable than those which we have mentioned, truths vastly more astounding which give us a glimpse into the past of our world and enable us to forecast its future. The mathematical study of the tides was commenced by Sir Isaac Newton, who confirmed by his work the vague notion of Galileo and Kepler that the tides were caused by the sun and moon. Laplace, the famous French mathematician, completed Newton's investigation and worked out mathematically the complete theory of the tides. In more recent times, the mathematical work of these investigators has been supplemented by that of Professor Sir George Darwin of Cambridge, 
whose researches have given us a glimpse into the shadowy past and the mysterious future. Darwin found, in the course of his investigations, that the constant tidal wave persistent throughout the ages acts on the earth as a brake acts upon a machine. It tends to retard the earth's motion of rotation on its axis. In other words, the tides tend to increase the length of the day by slowing down the rate at which our world is spinning. It will be noticed that, so far as we know, this is the tendency of tidal action. In the history of mankind, the day has not lengthened by even a small fraction of a second, and we do not know from experience that this constant tidal action is wearing down our planet's speed. Nevertheless, mathematicians have proved this to be the case. Millions of years are required for the results of these forces to become manifest, so it is not surprising that the length of the day has not changed appreciably in the course of the few thousand years during which the human race has lived on this planet, and the few hundred years in which astronomers have determined the length of the day with any approach to accuracy. Not only is the day becoming longer, the moon's distance is becoming greater, and its period of revolution is increasing in length. At the present time our day is about 24 hours long, and our month about 27 days. Darwin's researches show that with the constant friction of the tides on the earth, the day will be lengthened at a more rapid rate than the month, and in the distant future the day and month will coincide in length, both lasting for 55 of our present days. The moon will revolve round the earth in exactly the same period as our planet requires to rotate on its axis, so that the two bodies will perform their revolution round the sun, as if united by a bar turning the same face to each other. This is the future which the continuous action of the tides holds in store for our planet. Not only does a study of tidal action give us a glimpse into the future of the earth and the moon, it also enables us to read the past when the earth was in a plastic condition and tremendous tides were raised not in the oceans but in the semi-liquid crust of our planet in the early stages of its history. According to Darwin, the earth in the remote past was rotating on its axis in a very short period, probably between three and five hours. Reasoning backward, we see that the moon must have been much nearer to the earth at that time than it is now, and was probably revolving round its primary in a period identical with that of the earth's rotation. The earth and the moon, then in a gaseous or semi-gaseous condition, must have been revolving almost in actual contact. This was a state of affairs which could not continue. The condition of the moon resembled that of an egg balanced on its point. The moon must either recede from the earth or fall back on its surface, and had the month been even one second shorter than the day, our satellite would have become united to the terrestrial globe. Here interposed the tide, raised by the sun in the plastic materials of the two bodies, and the action of this tide caused the moon to recede slowly from its primary until it reached its present distance of 238,000 miles. Now the fact that the earth and the moon were at this distant epoch almost in contact suggests that they were originally in contact and formed one body. The moon originally formed part of the earth, which in consequence of its very rapid period of rotation between three and five hours, and also owing to the interference of the solar tide, split into two, and of these portions the smaller now forms the moon. The matter which now forms the moon may have been detached from our earth as a whole, or in parts, 
but it is almost certain that it was detached from the earth owing to the rapid rotation of our planet, which made a rupture inevitable. A suggestive speculation due to Professor W. H. Pickering, the well-known American astronomer, is worth mentioning here, so full of interest is it to the Earth's inhabitants. Following up Darwin's work, Professor Pickering considers that, quote, it will be of interest to determine, if possible, from what part of the Earth the Moon originated. When, says Professor Pickering, the Earth-Moon planet condensed from the original nebula, its denser materials collected at the lower levels, while the lighter ones were distributed with considerable uniformity over its surface. At the present time we find the lighter materials missing from one hemisphere. We find a large mass of material now up in the sky, which is generally believed by astronomers, formerly formed part of the Earth, and the density of this material we find to be not far from that of the missing continents. From this we conclude that this mass of material formerly covered that part of the Earth where the continents are lacking, and which is now occupied by the Pacific Ocean. End quote. Professor Pickering also finds a connection between the volcanoes of the Pacific region and the volcanoes of the Moon. This, it is to be remembered, is merely a speculation, with, however, the balance of evidence on its side. It certainly gives a new interest to the study and contemplation of the Moon when we remember that the silver orb which illuminates our evening skies is formed of materials which once filled the bed of the greatest ocean on the globe. Another interesting fact disclosed by Darwin's studies is that, just as the tides raised by our satellite tend to retard the rotation of the Earth, so the tides which the Earth raises in the Moon have the same effect. There is, however, this important difference. There is no water on the Moon. The tides raised by our planet on the Moon did their work ages ago, when our satellite was in a plastic or semi-liquid condition. The superiority of the Earth over the Moon in the matter of size compelled the Moon to rotate on its axis in the same period as it requires to revolve round the Earth. We may now briefly sum up the conclusions to which astronomers have been led. First, we have a globe of molten matter, now known as the Earth, turning on its axis in a very short period. This very rapid rotation, assisted by the tides raised by the Sun in both bodies, caused the rupture of the Earth into two bodies, and the smaller now forms the Earth's satellite, which we call the Moon. As a result of continual tidal action, the rotation of the Moon was retarded, and it was forced farther and farther from our planet until it reached its present position. Slowly but surely, the action of the Moon in raising the tides of the ocean is slowing down the rotation of the Earth on its axis, and in the distant future, probably long after the Earth is uninhabitable and dead, our planet will require 55 of its present days to rotate on its axis. What of the time which has elapsed since the moon was separated from the earth? This is a matter of some uncertainty, and Professor Darwin's studies place the period of disruption at about 57 millions of years ago. The mind falls back astounded at such a statement, and we can only repeat with deeper reverence the familiar words, quote, A thousand ages in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. End quote. When on a moonlight evening we stand on the seashore and behold the ceaseless ebb and flow of the ocean, with the sound of the waters breaking on the rocks, we have brought to our minds overwhelming thoughts. There is the silver moon which is constantly operating on our planet, and which by means of this ceaseless ebb and flow which its action causes, is slowly but surely lengthening our day and slowing down our world and by a study of the tides we have reached the remarkable conclusion that the same silver moon, our planet's faithful attendant,
has been constantly traveling farther and farther from the earth since that period when it separated from our world, and that period we have calculated as 57 millions of years ago. Truly, of all the wonders of modern astronomy, there are few more astounding than the romance of the tides. End of section 25. Read by Sandra Muskoka, 2022.